Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Jesus, the Irresistible Incomprehensible. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 24th, 2014. This summer, I read the novel Americana by Chimanda Ngozi Adichie. The New York Times named it one of the top 10 books of 2013. Adichie is routinely mentioned as one of Africa's most important contemporary writers. Her work has been translated into 30 languages. The novel Americana is a story about how race and place shape our personal identity and our sense of belonging. If Amelu, the protagonist and narrator, never thought of herself as black until she moved from Nigeria to America. But the color of her skin and the texture of her hair were only two aspects of her personal identity that assumed new meaning in a new place. There was also language, for example. Whenever Auntie Uju spoke to white Americans in the presence of white Americans, she spoke with an American accent. But that artifice came with a cost. There emerged a new persona, she thought. If Amelo felt like America had subdued her Auntie Uju, and she vowed that she wouldn't let that happen to her. She even remembers the exact day when she stopped speaking with an American accent and reverted to the natural lilt of her Nigerian language. Immigration intensifies Ifemelu's search for her true self, for living in a new place is often a time when we reinvent ourselves, willingly or not, knowingly or not, into new versions of our old selves. She leaves her Nigerian boyfriend and falls in love with both black and white American men. She observes differences between African Americans and American Africans. Wherever she turned, Ifemelu encountered slippery layers of meaning that eluded her. Music, food, church, school, and work. Even the bearing and demeanor of her cousin revealed that fine-grained mark that culture stamps on people. Returning to Nigeria 13 years later was just as difficult. She was no longer sure what was new in Lagos and what was new in herself. At a meeting of Nigerian returnees from the West, she feared that she had become a smug cosmopolitan Americana that she had vowed never to become. Still, she couldn't help but see Nigeria through American eyes. Her identity had been shaped by race and place and a host of other powerful forces. The Gospel this week from Matthew 16 is about the personal identity of Jesus. One day he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? It's instructive that this question was raised and that it survives in our historical records. It indicates that the earliest memories of the earliest believers were agitated about the personal identity of Jesus. 
Exactly who was he? From then until now, the question has always elicited controversy rather than clarity. There were rumors of miracles, healings, and exorcisms. He itinerated from village to village with rich women who supported him. He forgave sins. His brothers didn't believe in him. Conscientious Jews were shocked that he violated purity laws, ate with sinners, and embraced Gentiles. Many of his closest supporters stopped following him. Others said that he told people not to pay their taxes. And so Rome executed him as a criminal. Jesus was executed not as an innocent victim or because of a miscarriage of justice, says William Stringfellow. No, of the charges, of the charges against him, subverting the nation and undermining its very existence, Jesus was guilty beyond any doubt. Who was Jesus? Nobody could agree. Some say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus then turns his theological question into a personal query. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And so my own identity is bound up with the identity of Jesus. Peter, the early confessor and later denier, responded, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This description of Jesus as the Son of God recurs throughout the Gospels, at Gabriel's Annunciation to Mary, at his baptism, his transfiguration, with adoration by his disciples and mockery by his enemies at his crucifixion. Jesus himself claimed a unique filial relationship with God, whom he called Abba. And John concludes his gospel by writing, I have written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. In his book from 2006, What Jesus Meant, the historian Gary Wills writes, He intended to reveal the Father to us, and to show that he is the only begotten son of that father. What he signifies is always more challenging than we expect, more outrageous, more egregious. Even if we identified the original Jesus of history behind the later Christ of faith, he would become more rather than less mysterious to us. And so concludes Wills, tremendous ingenuity has been expended to compromise these uncompromising words. Jesus is just too much for us. In Greeting Jesus, her 2009 book, Mary Gordon describes how a few years ago she was stuck in a taxi in New York City. When the driver turned on the radio, she was forced to listen to some Christian program. Gordon, the Millicent C. McIntosh professor in English and writing at Bernard College, has written 15 novels, memoirs, and works of literary criticism. Raised as a Catholic, she was vaguely familiar with the scriptures. But listening to the radio that day provoked a realization that filled her with a clutch of anxiety and shame. 
She was almost 60, but had never read the four Gospels straight through from the beginning of Matthew to the end of John. And so her book describes that disturbing and exhilarating enterprise. Gordon doesn't settle for a superficial reading. She writes, It seemed to me that if I were going to take this project seriously, I would have to question my own reading and examine its lacunae. I would have to ask myself, do I really know what the Gospels are about? Or have I invented a Jesus to fulfill my own wishes? And so her book aims for a tone that is personal and self-questioning. She first explores what draws her to Jesus as what she calls the irresistible incomprehensible. Beginning with the prodigal son, she wonders about God's economy of mercy that invites celebration, joy, and generosity, but that also questions us, are you envious because I am generous? And so the radical challenge of Jesus, perhaps everything we think in order to know ourselves as comfortable citizens of a predictable world is wrong. The second half of her book explores problem texts, for there are many reasons for being appalled by Jesus as there are for being drawn to him. She admits that it's tempting to excise from the Bible the parts that you don't like, but she's far too honest to take the easy way out. Miracles are a problem for post-enlightenment moderns dedicated to the scientific method, but in the end she would not delete them. Calls to asceticism and self-denial make her wonder about happiness and pleasure. The call to be perfect sounds ideal, but it's impossible. Apocalyptic language is violent and encourages readers to see themselves as elect and their enemies as damned. The anti-Semitism of John and the divinity of Jesus complete her survey of problem texts. In a final chapter, Gordon contemplates the seven last words of Christ. She writes, What words could be plainer than these? The plainness of the language gives me the courage for a plain assertion, an assertion that I find embarrassing to make. But embarrassment is not one of the great emotions. And these words demand the attempt at a response that does not mire itself in self-regard. So now I say, these words are the foundation and basis of my religious life. They serve for me as a filter or a funnel in which everything that has gone before in the Gospels pours itself and arrives at the end as a pure tincture, clear, usable, entirely free of sediment and res residual. The living water, the water of life. These are not the last words of Oedipus, Lear, or Alexander the Great, says Gordon. They are the seven last words of Jesus. And so she concludes, his life and death either have no meaning or create a meaning unique in the history of the world. For book this week, I review a title by Scott Anderson, 
It's called Lawrence in Arabia. War, Deceit, Imperial Folly, and the Making of the Middle East. New York Doubleday, 2013, 577 pages. Colonel Thomas Edward Lawrence. Lawrence of Arabia, in popular imagination and cinema, was Britain's most legendary hero of World War I. He was also an enigmatic and controversial figure. To this day, Lawrence has his detractors and his lionizers. He disdained military protocol. He committed treason, supporting the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Turks. He was cynical about the lies, the propaganda, and self-aggrandizement of his country. Fluent in Arabic, famous for his physical stamina, an Oxford archaeologist turned desert warrior, and a celebrity author of a post-war memoir, he considered himself a failure and a fraud for how France, Britain, and the United States carved up the former Ottoman Empire. At the age of 30, in a private ceremony before the King and Queen of England to make him a knight, he refused the honor and stunned his audience when he walked out. Author Scott Anderson tries to separate the facts from the fiction, and when that's not possible, he explains why. His book is primarily a biography of Lawrence's role in the Middle East theater of World War I. But it is also a group biography of three other major actors. The American William Yale worked for the Standard Oil Company gobbling up oil concessions while everyone else was at war. He became the primary intelligence asset for the United States in the Middle East. Kurt Prufer was a German spy, and Aaron Aronson was a brilliant agronomist, fluent in six languages, a prominent Zionist, and leader of a Jewish spy ring. Lawrence's story plays out on a larger canvas. The Turkish genocide of 800,000 Armenians, the Balfour Declaration supporting a Jewish state, the fall of the 600-year-old Ottoman Empire, the Bolshevik Revolution that overthrew the Russian Empire, the ruthless quest for oil, and the slaughter of 16 million people. Anderson is unsparing in his prose about the bureaucratic incompetence, the imperial hubris and ignorance, the violence of war that is dehumanizing rather than heroic, the complexity of Middle East tribal cultures, and the lessons still not learned even today by Westerners. This book was on many of the best of 2013 lists. Scott Anderson, Lawrence in Arabia. For movies this week, we go to the African country of Burkina Faso. The title of the movie, The Man Who Stopped the Desert, 2010. Yakuba Sawadogo is an illiterate farmer in the West African country of Burkina Faso 
who's done more to reverse the ravages of drought and desertification than all the money and expertise of Western aid and agencies. So says the Dutch scientist Chris Reich, who helps to narrate this documentary film about Sawadogo. Raj has helped Sawadogo for 25 years. His simple methods have turned 50 acres of harsh desert into lush forests. First, he digs xi holes or pits that are bigger and deeper than normal and fills them with manure. The holes capture the rain. Next, simple lines of small stones on the hard-baked land slow down the rain runoff and help it soak into the ground. Sawadogo has faced opposition from land chiefs because he's going against traditional practices and from the government's plan for urban expansion. Still, his techniques have impacted the social, cultural, economic, and environmental aspects of his community. They now enjoy food sovereignty even in years of little rain. The Man Who Stopped the Desert. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted one of my all-time favorite poems. It's by Wendell Berry, the farmer poet. It's called Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Love the quick profit, the annual raise vacation with pay, want more of everything ready-made, be afraid to know your neighbors and to die, and you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So, friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the world. Love the Lord. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance, for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted in the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of hummus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, 
Will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie down in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail, the way you did not go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Wendell Berry, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August 24th, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.